It is definitely good to be here with you this evening to be able to bring you uh, the Word of God, both reading it as well as proclaiming it. And to that end, if you would please, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 20. Proverbs chapter 20. And this evening's message comes to us from Proverbs chapter 20, verses 29 through verse 2 of chapter 21. So just four brief verses. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 20, and we'll begin reading in verse 29. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Proverbs chapter 20, beginning in verse 29. Hear God's word. The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Blows that wound cleanse away evil, strokes make clean the innermost parts. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, He turns it wherever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, you have spoken. And so we pray, O Lord, that as you have revealed your word in Christ, as well as in the written word, that you would give us eyes to see ears to hear, receptive hearts, O Lord, those that are disposed not only to your grace, but also, O Lord, those that are disposed to seeking your glory above all else. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, the harmony that once existed in the world before the entrance of sin was broken. We know, of course, all about the disharmony that sin brought into the world from that initial account of God's encounter uh, with Adam and Eve in the garden where uh, Adam pointed the finger at his wife Eve, Eve pointed the finger at the serpent, and there was disharmony in the world where people were at one another and blaming one another and thinking one another uh, as being the, the problem. Well, we can say that another chapter in this ongoing song of, uh, or this ongoing book, if you will, of disharmony is the uh, unceasing battle between generations, where as one generation is born, it is young and it thinks that it has the world by the tail. And then the older generation looks down upon uh, the younger generation that says, you know, I'm not quite so sure that you understand or know everything that you think you do. In the words of a song, as one of my children would say, that comes from the 1900s, which makes it sound really old, uh, it says, what's the matter with the clothes I'm wearing? Well, can't you tell that your tie's too wide? What's the matter with the car I'm driving? Well, can't you tell that it's out of style? Uh, What's the matter with the crowd I'm seeing? Well, don't you know that they're out of touch? The younger generation has this inbuilt assumption that what is newer is better, and thus young people are the only ones that can fix the world's problems. Or in the words of Shakespeare, he says, youth is full of pleasure, age is full of, or sorry, youth is full of pleasance, age is full of care. Youth like summer morn, age like winter weather. Youth, like summer brace, 
Age like winter bear. Youth is full of sport. Age's breath is short. Youth is nimble. Age is lame. Youth is hot and bold. Age is weak and cold. Youth is wild and age is tame. Age, I do abhor thee. Youth, I do adore thee. And again, you see this idea, not only of, of, of the fact that you see the conflict between the generations, but also the idea that maybe in some sense, those who are older kind of wish that they could go back because that's supposedly when things were better. And yet, in spite of uh, our cultures and multiple generations' infatuation with youth, even unbelievers recognize that youth isn't necessarily all that it's cracked up to be. An ancient uh, philosopher by the name of Democritus, who lived in the 5th century BC, once said, the pride of youth is strength and beauty, but the pride of old age is in discretion. In other words, Democritus sees that, you know what, yeah, young people have some strengths, they have some things that perhaps the uh, older set do not, but on the other hand, there are some things and some advantages and some experience that the older set has uh, that uh, the younger set does not. And I think that this is the particular sliver of truth that Solomon is seeking to impart to his sons. In other words, in a world that is uh, uh, marked by disharmony, where there are generations pitted one against another, I think what Solomon is trying to do is point his sons to the wisdom of God in Christ, Christ who brings together, who does not separate, but rather he brings together the young and the old, uh, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. He brings people together in that regard, not so that they can boast about one another or be unappreciative of one another, but rather so that they can see that each one has various strengths that the Lord uses for the upbuilding of his people, for the building of his church, and for the betterment of the kingdom of God. And so what we want to do is we want to give thought to how Solomon does this and how he points out that, yes, youth has some advantages, but also those who are older are often and typically wiser and that they can guide youth as they walk in the Christian life. But in addition to that, it's not just simply so that they can give them generic advice and counsel, although I'm sure that that happens uh, in the course of life. But rather, it's the idea that Solomon is essentially saying is don't pit generations one against another, but rather those of you who are young, seek out those who are old and wise, because what the wise have to impart to you is this vital message, is that no matter what befalls you in this life, whatever happens to you by the providence of God, You need to trust in the sovereign wisdom of God. He knows better. He is sovereign. He is wise. He's in control. So no matter how things may appear, don't lose sight of these truths. So in other words, young and old working together as God brings both unity in the person of Christ to trust in Christ Uh, and to trust in the providence of God in life. So what we want to do this this evening is we want to look first at what Solomon has to say about the pride of youth. Uh, And then secondly, we want to see how those who are wiser and older are supposed to point the youth uh, towards the sovereign wisdom of God. 
So the pride of youth. Solomon begins this uh, next section of Proverbs with an introduction about trusting in God, which he starts by making observations about young versus old. He says in verse 29 of chapter 20, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Now, I, I wondered as I was reading this and as I came across Democritus' statement that whether or not Democritus may have been exposed to Solomon's wisdom. In other words, that Democritus peered over Solomon's shoulder because what Democritus has to say, the pride of youth is in the strength and beauty, the pride of old age is in discretion, parallels very closely what Solomon here says, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. In other words, they're both saying very similar things. It could be that Democritus got a glimpse at what Solomon was saying, somehow exposed to his writings. On the other hand, it could be that this is just simply God's wisdom that is embedded in the creation, and it is the wisdom that we all have by virtue of the fact that we are image bearers, that we can see these things. Regardless, notice what Solomon does not do here. He doesn't play the disharmony game. He doesn't play pitting one generation against the other. He does not diminish or ridicule youth. He doesn't say that. Rather, he makes the observation that every age has its benefits. And in this case, the glory of young men is their strength. It's like the other day, uh, a number of, um, a couple months ago, I, I, I competed in a, in a, in a, in a, a CrossFit competition because some of my students said, hey, Dr. Fesco, we'd love to see you come on out and, and compete with us. And I thought, all right, so we get to pick our events. And I'm like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm doing this event. I'll do the run. I'm not going to do these other two things because that I could have done maybe 30 years ago. And you should have seen some of these young men, some of these, some, yeah, yeah, a couple of these students, they would deadlift they would deadlift something like uh, 400 pounds. And I thought, if I try to deadlift any kind of weight of that capacity, you're going to see parts of me shoot off across the gym. I mean, it's just not going to go well. And so let's just, I will just recognize with Solomon, the glory of young men is their strength. You know, Albert Einstein once, uh, once acknowledged, older men start wars, but younger men fight them. And so here, this is something that we see. We can see this and we can observe this. You know, you look at professional athletes, it's for the most part a young person's uh, endeavor. But notice conversely what Solomon has to say about old men. He says their splendor is their gray hair. Now, he's not just making an observation about the color of one's hair. It's not about how a person looks, but rather about the wisdom that an older person has ostensibly gained in life. In Proverbs chapter 16, a couple of chapters back, verse 31, he says about this, remember this, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. In other words, if you've got gray hair, chances are you've lived a while. And if you've lived a while, a long time, it means that you've probably made good decisions in life. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. So in other words, young people have their strength, which is their glory. But old 
people or older people have the treasure of wisdom gathered from a lifetime of experience, a treasure ideally that beams with the wisdom of Christ. A treasure that beams with the wisdom of Christ. Ultimately, what Solomon is saying here is he's not just pointing to a generic wisdom. But remember, this is in the context of Israel. He himself, Solomon, is in the line of the Messiah. They are all looking for the redemption that will come to the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. And so there's, he's saying to his son, yes, you may be strong. But look to those who are older and wiser. Look to them because their lives ideally beam with the wisdom of Christ. So given that Solomon wants to instruct his sons who are younger than he is, he therefore passes on wisdom about the the nature of the Christian life. And he wants to say, this is what's going to happen along the way. Let me... Me, I I am older. Let me pass on some of this wisdom to you. Let me show you, hopefully, what I've earned by virtue of my gray hair. And so he says this. This is what you're going to encounter along the way. Verse 30. Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. What Solomon here is telling his son, his younger son, is he's saying, you're going to have tough times. You're going to have challenges. Things are not always going to be easy. Again, Albert Einstein said there is only one road to human greatness through the school of hard knocks. That's true. I suspect that it's not the many, many days that went by uneventfully where we were warm, where we were fed, uh, where everything went uneventfully so. It's the tough days that we remember the most. And it's the tough days that teach us the most. You know, in the words of the atheist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think that this is Solomon's point. He's preparing his son to say, let me pass on some of my gray-haired wisdom to you. Because life is not simply all about strength. You have to know. You have to be wise. So what Einstein and Nietzsche say again is essentially, I think, maybe a small splinter of what Solomon is saying. What they get right is they're saying that the right kind of suffering produces character. The right kind of suffering produces character. But Solomon goes deeper here and he uh, gets into a, into a, a truth that has roots in God's covenantal relationship with his people. As Christ has taught us, God is our heavenly father. And as such, what Solomon is saying is that uh, along life's journey, our heavenly father might subject us to blows. Our heavenly father might just subject us to blows. But these aren't blows of anger. These aren't blows of disinterest. These are not blows of indifference. They are not intended to harm, but rather they're intended to sanctify. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. The psalmist knew that he was being afflicted. He could say, perhaps, in Solomon's words, he was receiving blows. And yet, he was grateful for it. 
because he knew that the Lord was sanctifying him. Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is what Solomon is saying. He's saying is, He's saying in not so many words, God loves you. And even when things are difficult, it may be that God is delivering blows against you, but these are blows for your sanctification. These are trials that will conform you unto his image. Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Calvin says along these lines, God has promised that he will chastise his servants not according to their deserts, but as they are able to bear. In other words, I think the overall intent of Solomon's counsel here is he's saying, son, let me teach you something that I've learned in this life. Let me teach you something that this gray hair is a symbol of, which is things are going to be tough. You're going to encounter trials, but they're ultimately a manifestation of God's love for you. So Solomon's point is that the providential blows that we receive in this life are not those of an angry God, but rather they're those of our Heavenly Father as he conforms us to his holy image through his paternal discipline and even through his paternal love. In Christ, along life's way, we have the providential care, love, and discipline of our Heavenly Father. But if this is the case, what Solomon is implicitly saying here is he's saying, Son, Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. You're going to be subjected to some tough times. God will deliver trials in your direction. But what this means, and what I've learned, is you have to trust God no matter what. You have to trust in his sovereign wisdom, which brings us to our second point. And that I think a great fear among us is that we are perhaps ready to trust God. And they're like, we say, okay, Lord, I can trust you. I know everything that you've done for me. I know how you have saved me, how you continually bless me. But I'm not just so sure about the people that are around me. I'm not so sure that I can trust my family member. I'm not so sure that I can trust my coworker. I'm not so sure that I can trust the people in charge, whoever they may be, whether they're bosses, whether they are the mayor, whether it's the president, whoever it may be. You know, in this particular case, I think I can envision Solomon's son asking, okay, dad, I'm going to be subjected maybe to some tough times, but what happens if I'm subject to unjust punishment by a king or by some authority? What happens if the blows that wound cleanse away evil are unjust blows. Solomon counsels his son. He says, look, I want you to note that whatever authorities may bring action against you, blows even against you, I want you to look through that authority. I want you to look at that king and then look upward. And I want you to recognize who ultimately is in control. Chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 
This is apt, I think, in powerful imagery in that a stream originates from a spring and it doesn't have much power behind it, but if joined by other streams, it can become a powerful river capable of generating a great amount of energy. And in this case, whether it's a small trickle or a torrential uh, force joined uh, with arrogance, foolishness, sinful counsel, or the lucre of ill-gotten gain, Solomon says, no matter what happens, no matter who's in charge, remember, God is ultimately in control. Don't forget that. That's what my many years has taught me, that God is in control. Let me pass that along to you. God alone can turn the heart of the king in whatever direction he wills. This is a truth that we find repeatedly throughout the scriptures. When Abraham was journeying in the Negev with Sarah and King Abimelech took Sarah, his wife, into his harem, God protected them both. God visited King Abimelech in a dream and he said, don't you lay a hand on her. God turns the heart of the king as a stream in his hand, whichever way he wills. When Joseph was sold into slavery, God made Pharaoh favorably disposed to Joseph so that Joseph was elevated to be second in charge of all of the land. Here is a former slave. Here is one who was in prison. And yet God turns the heart favorably towards Joseph. When Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken into captivity into Babylon, God turned the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar according to his will, and he protected them. And so you can see this time and time again. And yet I think, I wonder if Solomon's son might have retorted, but what about Israel's bondage in Egypt? And Pharaoh's harsh treatment of Israel. What then? What about that unjust treatment? What about those blows? How are those blows cleansing away evil? But once again, we should recognize that the testimony of Scripture says even there, God was still in control, turning Pharaoh's heart as God so chose. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose that I have raised you up, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God was turning the heart of Pharaoh in whatever direction he so chose. Under Ahab's wicked reign, we might think that the Lord was dormant, and yet he was still in control, evident by the fact that Elijah had his, his battle and his duel with the prophets of Baal, and he was victorious. But I think the pinnacle of God's control over the heart of the king appears to us in redemptive history in the cross of Christ. You know, what does the psalmist say in Psalm 2? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Well, the apostle Peter said in in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Though the nations were raging, God was still in control. God was still in control. And in this particular case, he was in control so that, yes, his son received blows. But those blows were our redemption, our salvation. It's not that Pilate 
and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Sadducees had somehow wrested control from the hands of God. He was still sovereignly in control, bringing about our redemption, turning the heart of the king like a stream in whichever way he so chose. So whether it's in Ahasuerus's sleepless nights in the book of Esther, or whether it's in Pharaoh's or Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, as Solomon says here in 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. This is what Solomon is passing down. His gray hair experience is telling his young, strong son, son, it's not all about muscle. It's about trusting the Lord. Learn that from me. Let me pass on this experience to you. But Solomon also presses this point home because often it's the case is that we're prepared, we're really prepared to point that finger and say, okay, well, what about that guy? What about this situation? What about the unjust king? I can't say that Solomon said this in this particular setting, but I can't help but wonder if he might have said, son, when you point your finger, you got three pointing back at you. And so he turns his son's attention to the proclivities of his own sinful heart. And he says in verse 2, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. In other words, he says, just as the the Lord can turn the, the stream of the king's heart whichever way he chooses, this means he can see your heart. He knows the thoughts of the king. He knows your thoughts as well. As Jeremiah, the prophet, powerfully stated in his prophecy, chapter 17, verses 9, and following the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This is why I think in my own Christian walk, my own sanctification, Sometimes I do fret about, you know, the people around me, the the circumstances around me, the culture, the, the government, the community, my extended family. But more often than not, I'm more concerned about the person that stares me back in the mirror than I am about anybody else. One of my regular prayers is, oh, Lord, please protect me from me. Please protect me from me. And so in the face of God's discipline or when confronted by his wisdom or when we face challenging circumstances, what Solomon is saying, he's saying, watch your own heart. Let me, with this gray hair on my head, pass this down to you because, son, it's not just about strength. It's about seeking the wisdom of God in Christ. Because with the dangers of our sin-darkened hearts, we ultimately have to cry out to our Heavenly Father in prayer to seek His grace in Christ through the Spirit. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I mean, there's sometimes when I can almost imagine Solomon sitting there with his son or with his sons and with his his wife passing on this wisdom as he's imploring his sons, learn from me. Learn from me. Let me teach you. 
So what one commentator says about this, and I think this is, uh, lies at the heart of what Solomon conveys, is self-distrust is therefore the wisdom of true godliness. We shouldn't trust ourselves too much. You know, or to put it in other terms, we, we shouldn't listen to too much of our own counsel. We should instead always seek the counsel and the wisdom of God in Christ. We have to pray that God would enable us to trust in his sovereign wisdom, a wisdom revealed in Christ and in his cross and given to us by the Spirit of God. It's a wisdom that gives unto us the robe of Christ's righteousness for covering our sin. It's a wisdom that gives us the mind of Christ through the Spirit to guide us in life. It's a wisdom that gives us the love of our Heavenly Father. You know, what powerful words Paul conveys to us when he says in Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so here what Solomon is saying is he's saying to his son, listen to me, son. You can't muscle your way through life. Yes, the glory of youth is your strength. But the glory of an old man is his gray hair. Let me teach you what I have learned in God's providence, in the wisdom of Christ, and pass that on to you so that when you encounter those trials in life, you can know, regardless of what you face, that you can trust the Lord because he's in control of the authorities. He's in control of the king's heart. He's in control, moreover, and he knows your heart. So cry out to him, seek to him, seek him in prayer, seek his wisdom, seek his grace, seek his love. Humble yourself and draw near unto him. When I first heard these words, they really struck me. And I I heard them some 25, 26, 27 years ago. I'm terrible at math, so I don't know how many years ago. I know it was more than 25. And it's a a poem from T.S. Eliot. Uh, called the Four Quartets. And he says this, Do not let me hear of the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly, their, of their, their fear of fear and frenzy, their fear of possession, of belonging to another or to others or to God. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. There's a sense in which Eliot captures a slightly different side of what Solomon is saying. Solomon is saying, listen to my wisdom. Let me pass on to you my experience. But I think that you could say that what Eliot captures here is the flip side of the same coin, which is he says, I don't want to hear of the wisdom of old men. I want to hear of their folly. I want to hear of the things that they fear. In other words, I don't want to see what these older, wiser men have gotten right. I want to see what they have gotten wrong so that I can learn from their mistakes. And that's why he concludes this line from this poem from the Four Quartets. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. I think this is ultimately what Solomon is calling his sons to. The wisdom of humility. A humility that we find only in Christ, that we receive only by grace through faith in Christ by the Spirit. So, beloved, 
Our hope should be that as the body of Christ, that we don't fall into the trap of sin where we pit one against another, where husbands are pitted against wives, where parents are pitted against children, where old are pitted against young and young against old, where we, we, we echo that cacophonous disharmony that first originated on the heels of the fall in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were pointing the finger at each other, pointing the finger at the creation, pointing their fingers at God, blaming him for everything. Rather, our prayer should be is that as we all draw near to God in Christ, that he would bring about by his grace unity, where we would not grow envious of the strength of the, of the young, but rather we would say, let me try to pass on some of the wisdom that God has imparted to me through Christ, through his scriptures, and through the experiences of my life, so that you can channel that strength that you have in the right direction. Let me show you a better way. Let me show you not just simply the things that I got right in life, But in humility, let me show you the things where I have utterly made a mess of my life and show you, please, don't make these same mistakes. This is a wisdom, ultimately, that that trusts in God no matter the circumstances, no matter who has the earthly power or authority. It's a wisdom that distrusts self and relies wholeheartedly upon God's word. And it's a wisdom that uh, humbly receives God's fatherly discipline knowing that he loves us in Christ. But in the end, we have to remember this, that God has a greater concern for our sanctification and our holiness more so than our comfort. And this is a wisdom that ultimately takes no pride in self, but ultimately and only boasts solely in the cross of Christ, which is the most powerful revelation of God's wisdom in the entire cosmos. And that is the wisdom to which Solomon calls his sons. And that is the wisdom, beloved in Christ, to which God calls us to himself, to that wisdom that is revealed in the cross of Christ. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for your wisdom. For you could have left us as orphans. Uh, You could have left us, O Lord, to our own devices. You could have left us to our own pretended wisdom. But instead, you humbled yourself, you took on the form of a servant in the person of your son, and you were humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us this mindset, this, the mind of Christ, and that in so doing, as we all pursue the mind of Christ, that you would bring about a greater unity in the body of Christ. So that regardless of the diversified nature of our body, male or female, uh, of modest or great means, uh, learned or unlearned, young or old, child or parent, that you would draw us into a unified stance in Christ. And that for those of us who are younger, We would seek out the wisdom, the sage counsel of those who have lived and who have learned from your word and who have gone through that school of hard knocks, that school, that classroom of sanctification. 
We pray, O Lord, that we who are young would use our strength for the upbuilding of your church, not for our own glorification. And for we who are old and who have that wisdom, who have that crown of gray hair, that we would seek to point others to the cross of Christ. And that together, O Lord, you would bind us uh, in the bond of the Spirit and that you would glorify yourself in our midst. Sanctify us, we pray. Help us to trust you in challenging times, but glorify us in your midst. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.